David the psalmist wrote, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 27, 13 and 14. Welcome to another Humble Perspectives. I hope everything is well with you and that you're finding the grace of God for every situation you may be facing. I'm continuing to read and for such a time as this, one man's spiritual journey. This reading in this episode will be chapter 9, Separation. With deep sadness, Patricia and I left for Portsmouth in order to visit her parents for a couple of days. On one of the evenings there, Patricia's father and I drove into New Boston on an errand. As we traveled, I told him about the controversy that was stirring because of the issue of tongues. I did not want him to hear rumors or secondhand accounts, and he needed to know because of the effect all this would have on his daughter. His response both surprised and helped me. He said, I do not speak in tongues, but I know that it is in the Bible. And if I believed God, had, God wanted me to speak in tongues, I would do so. He went on to express his support for me as I sought to follow the Lord. On Saturday, we returned to Wisconsin. After preaching on Sunday, we left to go on to Grand Forks, North Dakota to begin training to be Bible translators. We left the key to our house so that the young couple who would care for the church could live there over the summer. Wycliffe Bible Translators, which I will often refer to as WBT, is a missionary organization in the sense that the purpose is to aid in spreading the gospel by providing the Bible in all the languages of the world. Wycliffe Bible Translators has focused on reaching tribal groups who have no written language. The Wycliffe missionary is not primarily a church planter or a teacher. Rather, he or she is a trained linguist who goes out to live among a tribal people in order to learn their language and their culture. Cameron Townsend, who came to be known as Uncle Cam, founded Wycliffe Bible Translators after translating the New Testament into a Guatemalan Indian or Native American language in the 1920s. Uncle Cam had no prior translation experience. He had gone to Guatemala to sell Spanish Bibles in 1917, only to discover that most of the people in the Native American tribes used Spanish only as a second language. Many of them could not read Spanish. Most of their native languages did not have a written form, so the Bible was not accessible to them. Uncle Cam felt, felt compelled to make the scriptures available to these people in their own language so that they could read the good news about Jesus for themselves. Although he had no prior linguistic training, he learned the language of one tribe, produced an alphabet, and translated the New Testament. As he worked, Uncle Cam had a growing desire and drive to see the New Testament made available in every language in the world. Therefore, in 1934, he began a summer program, which he called the Summer Institute of Linguistics, in order to train ling linguists so that they could translate the scriptures for other tribes. Summer Institute of Linguistics, or 
SIL, officially became a scholarly and humanitarian organization that began to serve internationally. In 1942, Uncle Cam formed Wycliffe Bible Translators as a vehicle to connect with churches in order to recruit Bible translators and to raise support for the work. Guatemala and other nations in Central and South America were officially Catholic nations, and Protestant missionaries were not allowed to work there. Therefore, Uncle Cam diplomatically formed contracts with the governing authorities for SIL to develop written languages for tribal peoples, to teach literacy, and to translate materials concerning health and agriculture and works of high moral value in order to promote their general welfare. Works of high moral value was understood unofficially to mean the Bible, but that was not made official in order not to conflict with the Catholic Church authorities. As the years passed, Uncle Cam used this strategy of contracting for SIL to work with civil governments by doing linguistic and humanitarian work to open the doors for Bible translation teams to work in several communist nations where missionary work was prohibited. This approach meant that the Wycliffe missionary could not come in and seek to plant a church or actively do Christian work in a direct way. However, through building relationships with the native speakers, and especially through working with native speakers in translating the scripture, the gospel was communicated. Often the native translator came to believe in the Lord Jesus and to follow him. In these cases, the Wycliffe missionary was often able to dis disciple the native translator. Sometimes, native churches began to grow out of this relationship. In other places, Wycliffe missionaries were able to serve workers from other missions in the area who were spreading the gospel but lacked the training to translate the Bible. The distinction between going out as a linguist instead of a missionary was important to my journey. On the one hand, it fit well with my desire to break down the big distinction in the level of commitment expected of the clergy in contrast to the laity. On the other hand, my motivation was to spread the good news about Jesus, resulting in the formation of communities of disciples. It seemed to me that Wycliffe SIL's methodology fit well with both these desires. In 1974, when Patricia and I first participated in one of the summer schools, SIL was a two-summer program requiring most students to do a semester's worth of graduate level training in linguistics in each 10-week summer session. There were special forums presented during the summer schools to introduce students to principles of anthropology and sociology, which Wycliffe missionaries had found to be important to their work. Depending on academic background, some students took the first-year material for undergraduate credit. Some spouses, including Patricia, took the courses on a pass-fail basis not trying to get college credit. It was an intense 10 weeks. As it turned out, Patricia and I have not yet used our linguistic training in a direct way. However, the three summers that we spent in SIL proved to be important in unexpected ways. First, I was deeply moved by the dedication of the Wycliffe Summer Institute of Linguistic Workers. These were people who had offered years of their lives to do this work, many times in primitive conditions. 
Many of them had worked for advanced academic degrees, not only to get more training, but also to become more credible to the governments where they worked and to be qualified to teach in university settings in these countries, as well as in the universities here where SIL was, summer sessions were located. They were so committed to call to the call to translate the scriptures that rather than work only in their own language assignments, they would give up two or three months at their own financial expense in order to train new workers. Second, I found at SIL that Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Pentecostals, and others could love and respect one another and could work together in unity to accomplish a common task. In my background, I had developed suspicion and judgment toward Christians who did not believe and worship like our group. My attitudes had begun to change through contact with the Jesus movement and the charismatic renewal. However, actually living in a dorm complex, eating meals, studying, and recreating together for 10 weeks with dedicated believers from other backgrounds opened me to a new respect and a love for the larger body of Christ. What's more, I came to realize that many of these people knew God in ways that I did not yet know Him, and that some had proved more dedication to Him than I had. Third, a few of the SIL staff and students were charismatic. Several of these staff members and a few students met to pray early each morning. That small prayer group became a source of spiritual encouragement for me. On Thursday evening, several from the prayer group would attend a charismatic prayer meeting sponsored by the Body of Christ community and held in the basement of St. Michael's Catholic Church. Each summer in Grand Forks, a few of these SIL people participated in the Thursday evening prayer meeting as well as some of the other activities of the Body of Christ community. One Thursday night, Patricia and I went along. Had we been told, we would never believe that attending this meeting would eventually become hugely significant in our journey. I enjoyed the meeting. Patricia had still not bought into the charismatic gifts and expression, and worshiping with Catholics was not her preference. I was not too sure about the Catholic part, but I did appreciate the worship and the sharing that took place in the meeting. After the meeting, true to my nature, I headed for the book table. I saw a number of books with which I was familiar, as well as several that I did not recognize. One small book, however, captured my attention. Co-written by a priest and Larry Alberts, who had led the meeting that night, the book was titled, Mary is a Pentecostal. I glanced through it, and curiosity aroused, I shelled out the 75-cent price and took it back to our room. I read it through that night before going to sleep. The title, of course, came from the fact that Mary, Jesus' mother, had been in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Because of the Catholic emphasis on the role of Mary, I could see that this would be a way to validate charismatic spirituality among Catholics. The book also related several incidents when Mary supposedly had made appearances to charismatics, not only to Catholics, but also to Protestants whom she was calling to return to the Roman Catholic Church. The book named some of Larry's friends in the Body of Christ community who had converted to Catholicism. The primary message I took from the book was that the charismatic renewal was a primary hope for restoring, quote, the departed brethren, unquote, 
in other words, Protestants, to the Roman Church. In a word, I took offense, deep offense. I made an inner vow to never go back to one of those meetings. Not only was I more than skeptical about these supposed visitations, but I also abhorred the idea of Protestants returning to the, quote, whore of Babylon, unquote, a term often applied to the Roman church by several of the preachers whom I had heard as a child. I fully intended to keep that vow. However, there was not much time to think about such matters that summer. I had to focus on the classwork, and there was the school bill to pay. I do not remember how it happened, but over the course of that summer, the money gradually came in to pay off the school bill. Our personal expenses were small, since our meals and rooms were provided, but there were some personal expenses, including laundry. There were some personal expenses, including laundry. And we had a year and a half old son. In those days, I don't believe disposable diapers existed yet. If they had, we could not have afforded to use them. I remember one time that we had 26 cents and had to wash the diapers. Patricia took that last quarter and put the diapers in the washer. We hung them all over our two dorm rooms to dry. A week before the summer session ended, I went in and checked the balance on our school bill. We still owed about $150. No money came in that week. We had $5. Yet we had to leave and we were scheduled to drive about 1,100 miles to Richland Center and on to Circleville. On the final day, after we had packed our car, I went back to the finance office. I had no choice but to apologize. We had not kept our commitment to pay off the bill before school ended. However, when the staff member looked up my account, it had been paid off and there was $50 left over. I left that room nearly floating with $55 in my wallet. As I walked toward the car, one of the missionaries stopped me. He informed me that the Lord had led him and his wife to give Patricia and me $20 for our trip home. God had certainly met us financially. He had provided all our needs at that point. With $75 in our possession and thanksgiving flowing from our lips, we headed out. Soon after arriving at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, I had written a letter to my dad. Later, I wished that I had kept a copy of the letter so that I could verify that what I had written was actually what I meant to say. It had been my intention to reaffirm my commitment to refrain from speaking in tongues. As I remember it, I had committed myself to restudy the matter of the gifts, particularly the matter of tongues, in the Bible in an effort to see if I had gone astray. I also recall writing that if God had not given me the gift of praying in tongues, then I would have to start over. By this, I meant that if it were not God who had led me into this, then I was not sure that I knew God at all. Whatever I wrote in that letter must have been ambiguous, but I did not realize that until several months later. I had no time for serious Bible study during the Summer Institute, but I did keep my word and refrain from using the gift of tongues in personal prayer and at the early morning prayer meeting as well. In mid-August, the summer school ended. We drove back to Richland Center and spent a night or two at home. To our surprise, the Bible college student who had substituted for me was still in town. 
He and his wife had moved across the street from our house to stay with a family from the church. Soon after we came home, the young student came over to our house in order to inform us that the people of the church had asked him to stay and pastor the church rather than for us to return. In that conversation, he also told me that he had been reading some of my books concerning the gifts of the Spirit and had begun to pray in tongues. These days, he is still involved with the charismatic church. Also, his dad, a Christian Union preacher, later left the denomination to pastor a traditional Pentecostal church, and his younger brother pastors charismatic church in the Dayton, Ohio area. The Holy Spirit certainly used my books to make an impact on that family. I did not argue with the young man. I did not consult with the church members. I remember that shortly before leaving for SIL, I had offended a few ladies with one of my decisions. I also knew that at least one husband, a member of the church board, had taken up his wife's offense. I thought maybe this situation had developed as a result of that offense. However, we had already planned to go to Ohio for Christian Union's General Council and annual camp meeting at Circleville. Rather than start a fight over the matter, Patricia and I left for Circleville without even staying for the Sunday services. Having seen so recently how God had provided fan financially, it was easy to believe that he would provide for us now in this situation as well. Soon after arriving at the campground, I found Brother Joe and told him about the situation in Richland Center. He said that I was not to worry about it. He said that he would take care of the matter and that we should plan to go right back to Richland Center once the camp meeting had ended. Within a few days, the young man and his wife were back in Ohio. During the council, Reverend Willard Kozad, whose term as general superintendent was about to end, called me into his office to discuss the matter of praying in tongues. Although he did not actually encourage me to pray in tongues, I found him to be personally supportive of me and interested in my journey. I gave him a copy of the Sermon on Unity and Diversity that I preached to my as my farewell message to the Wake Park Church. To my surprise, he had the message published in the September issue of Christian Union's denominational paper, The Advocate. After receiving my sermon from Reverend Kozad, the editor of The Advocate, P. Lewis Brevard approached me later during the camp meeting and asked me to send him more articles. We stayed with my parents most of the time during the council and the camp. And the camp. Excuse me. We stayed with my parents most of the time during the council and the camp because they lived nearby. As far as I can recall, we did not talk about the tongues issue. Of course, we also spent some of the time in Portsmouth with Patricia's family. Then we headed home to Wisconsin. We arrived safely and began to unload the car. As we had approached Ritson Center, we had assessed our financial condition. We knew that we would need groceries right away. We also knew there would be no paycheck for a week. A little more than two weeks before, we had left Grand Forks with $75. We traveled nearly 2,000 miles. We had had no choice but to buy our meals along the way. It had helped, of course, that we stayed with our parents while in Ohio, but there were other expenditures as well. I don't recall now when or from whom we received money along the way, but we must have received some because we arrived home with $33. Shortly after our arrival, we began to open mail. 
The first piece I opened was a bill for auto insurance due that day. The amount of the bill? $33. Thank God we can pay that bill, I thought, but now we're truly broke. The second piece of mail I opened was a card from my sister and brother-in-law. In the card I found a check for $30. What do you know? We were able to buy some groceries after all. Does God know how to provide or what? Time in Richland Center, though not easy, was productive in some ways. Before we left Minneapolis, God had begun to open my eyes to the need for unity among the churches in a geographic area. I recall one incident from our Wake Park days that may help reveal the vision that was developing in me. Scott Ross and another brother from the Love Inn community in Freeville, New York, had come to the Twin Cities to meet with some leaders about working together in a citywide outreach. Scott's radio show had been drawing a large audience in the area, and it seemed like his coming in person as the speaker would be an excellent way to draw in youth to hear the gospel. However, after several hours of discussion, Scott had informed us that he and his team could not come at that time. He said that according to their discernment, there was not enough substantial unity between the leaders and the ministries involved to do effective follow-up after the outreach. New Wine Magazine, which I began to read avidly each month, also presented the vision of the believers and leaders in a city working together in unity. Not long after I had arrived in Richland Center, I was glad to discover a few area pastors who had a similar vision for unity in the church. Meredith Twining, a free Methodist pastor, introduced me to Arvin Moyne, the pastor of a United Methodist circuit in the country, and also to the Assembly of God pastor. The four of us began to meet together weekly for prayer and fellowship. Arvid soon moved away to take a different church, but not before I discovered that he had actually been to conferences sponsored by the New Wine Teachers in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Although we didn't know one another well or for very long, Arvid was used by the Lord to confirm the work the Lord had begun in me. Also before he moved, Arvid told us about his brother-in-law who was pastoring a free Methodist church in Grand Forks. I grew in my understanding during that time. A primary factor in the growth continued to be the scripture reading regimen that I had begun in Minneapolis. New Wine Magazine and several tape series offered in that magazine were lifelines of teaching. I subscribed to Bob Mumford's Life Changers Recommended Tapes, a monthly ministry that introduced me to the messages of numerous Bible teachers whom the Lord had used to open my eyes to the wealth of truth in the broader body of Christ. I also continued to read books by Watchman Nee, especially after discovering that a Christian bookstore in our neighboring town, Viroqua, carried many of his books, more than I had known existed. During that period, the Lord especially used Nee's writing to help me understand God's way of working in a man, to help him have victory over sin, and to become the sort of person through whom God's life could flow out and touch others. In the fall of 1974, I wrote an article recommending Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life, and I also wrote a testimonial of the way I'd been learning to practice Nee's teaching in my own life. I sent the articles in to Mr. Brevard. He published them in the November and December 1974 issues of The Advocate. Living in Richland Center was something of a lonely period for Patricia and me. 
We had left great friendships in Minneapolis. Many of the young people there had become family to us. However, we were not able to form close friendships in our Richland Center Church. There were only a few in the church whom we could actually trust, and if we had become close to that few, others would have been jealous and stirred up problems. Our next-door neighbors, the Greens, were agnostics. Ironically, they became better friends with us than most of our church members. During that time, a serious flaw in Patricia's and my relationship came more fully to light. We loved one another deeply, and we were as committed to one another as ever. However, I had run ahead in terms of my understanding of Scripture and of some theological matters, changing dramatically in my understanding and experience. I had grown, but not with my wife. I had grown along with the brothers in my accountability group. I continued to grow through my relationship with John Meadows, with whom I was exchanging long cassette tape updates. I grew because of the books I was reading and the tapes that I was devouring. But I had failed to lead my wife well and to adjust my pace to her need. Patricia is not inclined to take interest in things that she perceives to be theological and academic. She is much more practically minded. She did not seem to mind me reading and listening, but she was fearful of the changes she saw happening in me. She recognized that I could not continue to change in my beliefs without that bringing change in the direction of our lives. We came to see that communication was a serious weakness in our relationship. We were friends, we were lovers, but we had a difficult time talking about the spiritual changes that were taking place in my mind and in the practice of my faith. Then and now, we really need each other. Her practical strengths lie in my weak areas. I should have learned how to support, encourage, and help her grow in her understanding and experience of God. Unfortunately, I pushed and pulled rather than coming alongside her. I meant well most of the time, but too often I came across like a cattle drover, not like a friend and shepherd. While at Wake Park, we had begun to hear teaching on the Christian family, emphasized by teachers in the body of Christ. One of the first books that I read on this subject, Larry Christensen's The Christian Family, strongly challenged me and it has proved to be foundational. While we lived in Richland Center, we kept hearing more and more teaching on this subject. After a time, we knew the principles. Living them was a different matter, especially for me. We lived in Richland Center a little less than a year and a half. When it came time to leave, we had not yet learned to communicate and to operate as one, particularly when it came to issues of the Spirit. We had come face to face with our need, which was necessary. In spring of 1974, Brother Joe had brought two Korean church leaders to visit our church. The Christian Union leadership wanted Patricia and me to consider moving to Korea in order to help start a Bible college. I exchanged several letters with the general missionary superintendent exploring this possibility. In the fall of 1974, Brother Joe and the new Christian Union general superintendent, Reverend Donovan Humble, my dad's first cousin, came to visit the church. It was a good visit. One conversation stands out in my memory. We were walking down the sidewalk on a cold fall evening, going to a meeting with the church in the basement of the city hall where we were holding our services. We were discussing the history of the church there in Richland Center. 
I had observed that even though I wanted to help these people reconcile with the Nazarene Church, in addition to the relational rifts, most of the people in this church were socioeconomically more like Christian Union people, one or two steps lower economically than a lot of the Nazarenes. The other men laughed a bit, and one of them remarked that my observation was insightful for one so young. Then Brother Donovan said, Denominations are not biblical anyway. They are man's attempt to help God. There was no time to follow up on the statement, but it stunned me. I had come to the conclusion that denominations were a serious problem, institutionalizing the divisions in the church. I do not think Brother Donovan meant anything pejorative by his remark. I think he was simply speaking factually. But it strengthened my growing discomfort with working in a denomination. The business of the gift of tongues had not been settled. I was still refraining from praying in tongues as I had promised. I had done all the research and study again. I had tried hard to pray about the matter. I knew it could not be sanctioned by the authorities in the Churches of Christ and Christian Union. I also knew that it would deeply wound my parents if I began again to pray in tongues. However, I could not continue to deny either what I had come to believe the scriptures taught or what I had experienced. We drove back to Ohio to celebrate Christmas with our families. I was heavy-hearted because I knew I was going to have to talk with Dad about my convictions concerning the gift of tongues. Dad really reached out to me during that visit. It was as though the tongues thing had never been an issue between us. He spent quite a bit of time with me. He bought me a pair of Florsheim shoes, the most expensive brand that I knew of back then. And for Christmas, he gave me his favorite 12-gauge shotgun, a five-shot pump-action Ithaca. I am confident that Dad was not trying to buy me off or anything, but it was obvious that he was pleased with me. I could not figure out why he was so free with me. And I failed. I did not break the mood by talking about what was on my heart. As Patricia and I headed back to Ritson Center, I knew that by putting off the conversation, I had only made things harder. For three weeks, I wrestled with what to do. Then I spent five hours writing a five-page letter to Dad detailing my struggle over the previous months and laying out my understanding of the scriptural teaching concerning the gifts of Spirit. I wrote that I had to be faithful to God and that I could no longer in good conscience continue to refrain from praying in tongues. With sad resolve, I posted the letter. Then I fasted for several days until I knew the letter had had time to reach my parents in Ohio. I heard nothing from them for two or three weeks. Then Mom called. With an obviously broken heart, she told me how badly she and Dad were wounded. She also told me that Dad had had no choice but to inform the general superintendent about the situation and thus to begin the process of separating us from the Churches of Christ and Christian Union. To my dismay, I learned later from John Meadows that there had been a serious misunderstanding or miscommunication between Dad and me. In my understanding, I had made a commitment in the letter of the previous June to refrain from praying in tongues while I prayed and studied through the matter again. Apparently, Dad had read that commitment as a commitment to renounce tongues altogether. 
It turned out that the matter of John and me speaking in tongues had been discussed in Christian Union's general board meeting in the summer of 1974. John's mother was on the board, along with my dad. John's mother had reported to him that during that discussion, Dad had said that I had renounced speaking in tongues. How awful it must have been for Dad. His firstborn son had gone off track into deception, and the prodigal had returned, he thought. But then his son had gone wrong again. He had to take back his own words to his fellow leaders. Several weeks later, Dad and I spoke to one another on the phone, although awkwardly. By early summer, we had begun to correspond again. Thankfully, we kept trying to relate with each other, even though we often ended the contacts painfully. I had no idea at that time that my efforts to make things better would only make them more difficult. I kept trying to get Dad to understand me. Therefore, our conversations became arguments. My letters caused more pain. The tapes and books that I sent to Dad, thinking that maybe he could at least come to understand, seemed to him to be efforts to convert him. Both of us wanted to see the relationship restored, yet we were at an impasse. Dad truly believed I needed to renounce the gift of tongues and return to the way he believed. I fully believed that I would be denying God to do so. Jesus, in prayer to the Father, had said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. John 17.3 I did not understand then that this painful rift with Dad was an early step in a journey that would lead me to know my Heavenly Father in a far greater way than I had known Him before. That spring, Christian Union sent two pastors, one of whom was my cousin, out to Wisconsin in order to bring me back to their way of thinking. Then in May, Brother Joe came out to Richland Center to officially release me from the denomination. When I handled, handed him my council ministerial license certificate, he wept. In the months ahead, I often thought about something Jesus had said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 34-39 Make no mistake about it, I do not blame Jesus for my rebellious attitude, which had been such a significant factor in the division that came between my parents and me. I do not blame him for my other weaknesses and failures that contributed to the problem. I have come to believe, however, that God did use this division as a way to free me to follow a path that he had planned for me, one that I have serious doubt I would have ever taken without this temporary division with my parents and the resulting separation from the familial ties that I had with the Churches of Christ and Christian Union. As I came to see later, the nature of the Kingdom of God is such that any treasure, whether a person, a thing, or a desire, that would keep one from absolutely surrendering himself or herself to the will of the King 
is something that God in His love and mercy will expose and He will call for the person to die to that thing. The treasure on which I was holding, I now believe, was a misplaced hope or expectation or demand that my parents, and especially my dad, accept and approve of me on my terms. Of course, there's a proper sort of acceptance that parents should give their children. But that acceptance does not include unqualified approval of any and every choice or action their children may make. We left Richland Center in June. During our last couple of months there, I had helped the church purchase the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. Our last Sunday in Richland Center was the church's first Sunday in their new building. We returned to Grand Forks for our second summer at SIL. 